You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, and welcome to Sustainably Geeky, episode 13. I'm Jennifer, and I'm joined today by Chris. Hello. And we have a special guest today, Jane Slade. Hi there. So uh, we're going to be talking about light pollution today, which is a really interesting topic that I learned a lot about um, actually when I met Jane at South by Southwest earlier this year. And um, she is a genius in this subject. So I'm going to give a brief bio and then we're going to jump right into the discussion. Um, So Jane is the specification sales manager for Spec Lines in Massachusetts. And she's also a lighting educator, consultant, and researcher at Anatomy of Night, which you can find at anatomyofnight.com, researching the many ways in which light impacts our environment, human health, wildlife, biodiversity, and interdependence. Uh, She's also a recent Richard Kelly grant recipient for explorations into the social and emotional impacts of light through her work in creating light fixtures from waste materials in India and through art installations focused on manipulating emotional experiences with light and color. So I'm really excited to hear a lot about that. Um, And lastly, she is a member of the IES Committee for Outdoor Environmental Lighting, as well as a past vice president of the DLF of New England, having uh, chaired scholarships with SENS university students to both light and building in Germany and light fair in North America. Um, And so you also do some art, Uh, in your studio, Anatomy of Light, and you teach yoga. So you've got a lot going on. Uh, Why don't you start, I guess, by just telling us, you know, kind of how you got into this field and um, how you started doing all these extra things that are really cool. Sure. So my master's is in interior design, and I started working in an architecture firm. And over that time, I had the word salvage banging around in my head over and over and over again. It was kind of like a calling. And at the school that I went to, I graduated from the Boston Architectural College. The whole premise of the school is work study. So while you're getting your master's, you're also working in a firm. So during that time, I always knew about this one scholarship, which was to pursue professional research. And generally the winners of it have used it to travel abroad for a research topic. And so there was this day where I realized that the word salvage was the submission for that scholarship. It was just this wonderful epiphany. Mm-hmm. And I, that, that ended up taking me to India to utilize waste as a material to make lighting fixtures. So the common thread really is that as an interior designer, when I was working in the specific field of interior design, I was really seeing that there were a lot of installations of building materials that were done in expedience. They were done to get the job done, put in acoustical ceiling tile, put in vinyl carpet, and five minutes later, that was going to be torn out when there was a new And I just had to think that there was something better we could be doing, and that's why the word salvage came into my head. Then I went to India, and that's when light kind of came in um, and making lighting fixtures. Uh, I should also say that at my time at the BAC, I was really honored to receive a lighting scholarship, which took me to Germany. And that, in 
combination with that lighting project I did in India was really the start of my lighting career as well. So the lighting industry, I've also sort of looked at as well as having additional waste. Um, but we are going to get into that in a lot of ways tonight. <laughs> yeah, That's so cool. So you had a very uh, kind of circuitous route to where you got, but um, it sounds like everything kind of impacted each other, you know, like it, yeah. it was, it, it all kind of naturally happened and, and that's really so um, you've also got a lot of experience in just creative reuse and um, making, you know, the best use of, of items versus starting from new. Exactly. In fact, there's an Indian term for that, which I really can't say very well, but it's called Jugad. And that means it's J-U-G-A-A-D. And that means literally to make the most of what you have at hand. So that concept is actually truly what took me to India. I love that. That's um, a really great concept. And I know, especially today with uh, people becoming more aware of, you know, resources, limited resources and their usage and how it impacts the planet, um, that's becoming a lot more popular and important, which is which is a really good thing. So um, awesome. So. I guess we'll just jump into the subject of light pollution and start by talking about what is it, for instance, for those that don't know. So do you have a quick like elevator pitch if somebody says, you know, what's light pollution and why does it matter? Sure. Light pollution is really any unwanted light. And uh, though we have grown tolerant of it, there's a ton of unwanted light on the planet and it can come in the form of light trespass. So, you hear that a lot with people saying, oh, there's light on my property or there's light shining through my windows. That's what we call light trespass, where light really is going further than we want it to go. Then we get into glare. So glare is when you have a really bright source that actually interrupts the ability of the eye to see. So you might see that in a uh, a, a light fixture itself where the actual panel of lights is so bright that even though it's illuminating, it's really kind of illuminating in a very jarring way because of the brightness mm -hmm. of the source itself. And we also have things like uh, clutter. This is where you have so many light sources that it suddenly becomes just really unappealing and lack and then creating a lack of understanding of our environment. And then one of the most pernicious factors of light pollution is truly sky glow. So the air is not actually invisible, though it appears to be. It's actually filled with a ton of soft particulate and dust. And when light shines through the dust, you actually create trillions of re-reflections. This light then is reflected throughout the sky and then reflected down back onto the earth that creates a ton of disruption for wildlife into the, our waters and basically really interrupting the circadian rhythms of both humans and wildlife. So that's the bare bones of what light pollution is. Yeah. And so I had heard of it before I heard your talk and then hearing you talk about um, some of that stuff in more detail really kind of opened my eyes to it. <laughs> no pun intended, to, to the, the problem. Um, I, I, and I guess 
I, I had always kind of seen it as like an inconvenience. You know, it's annoying when you've got lights everywhere and you just want to enjoy the sky or you just want to sleep or whatever. But um, but there are real health problems, both for humans and animals, as you as you mentioned. And and sometimes I don't think people even notice that that they may be suffering from them because they're so used to it, like you said, or they just attribute it to something else. Right. We have a cognitive understanding of what a stray light source might mean, but for animals, this is creating an uninterpretable language that does not make sense according to their biological rhythms. It also misinforms them in cognitive decisions such as migration or when they think that it might be time to start reproductive habits. Yeah, because they're a lot of times their bodies just respond to the light that they see and they start um, doing things like you said, mating or eating or, or migrating or moving around um, or just chirping all night long or something yeah. and keeping you awake if they can't. Well, some um, birds are actually nocturnal and many actually will migrate it over the night. There are some species of birds that will migrate tens of thousands of miles in one stretch. When they migrate at that distance, they will start to utilize their own body tissue. So fat, uh, getting up into even muscle tissue. They can reduce their body weight by half on these journeys. Wow. So when they have light that is taking them outside of the natural course of their migration through either light pollution from the faux constellations of cities or not being able to see the night sky itself because of sky glow, that this can really draw them up course in a very vulnerable state. It's estimated that one light source can create impact up to 120 miles away because of the re-reflections. And because we have really a growing population, it's estimated by 2100, we will have 11 billion people on the planet. And it's so simple and easy for us, any one of us, to get our hands on an LED and shine it in the wrong direction, shine it at the wrong time, shine it somewhere where it can really create impact for an animal or a plant. And because of that ease, this has brought me back to a quote that I actually had found during my studies at the Boston Architectural College. And it was about plastic, but it still really holds true for me now. So Charles Eames once said that the trouble with plastic is that you can do anything with it. <laughs> and boy, was he right, because 50, 60 years later, we have plastic in our food stream. I just read an article that it's estimated that we may be eating up to a credit card's worth of plastic in a week. Oh, I Ooh. read that. Yeah, I saw that too. And so... Yes. That has he said this there. when, I'm sorry, like 50 years ago? when they. He, he said it in the 50s. Wow. That's, yeah. you know, considering you don't hear a lot about people in the beginning knowing or thinking about the dangers of plastic, that's yeah. pretty profound. <laughs> yeah. And the problem is, is that there's, it's really kind of like a cancer on our planet because there's no limitation to its use. And what we, when we had light sources before, such as HID or high-pressure sodium, those used a significant amount of electricity. So that limiting factor actually was helpful. 
Now that we can put LEDs on batteries, on solar packs, in tiny little handheld devices, LEDs can truly be shown anywhere at any time. And they are truly out of our control. We don't have controls. So we are just starting to implement lighting controls in our lighting installations in the last um, you know, 20 years or so, 20, 30 years. And we're just starting to come into smart lighting controls. But the term controls really is pointing to the idea that we've not been in control of our lighting. We ha since we haven't had lighting controls, we haven't been in control of them. And what happens when humans are in public spaces is that they will socially loathe into not doing anything about lighting that doesn't make sense. So lighting is just on because no one's taking control of it. No one knows to do anything about it. And so until we really implement smart lighting controls to override and take over, we're going to see light pollution because of the sheer factor of how many LEDs are really available to be used. Hmm, interesting. Mm -hmm. So I want to real quick jump back to something you said about the wildlife yes. issue. I, I believe you talked about instances where birds got sucked into, was it a, a turbine or some kind of large uh, machine or something because of the yeah. light? they got confused and they just couldn't get out. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Cause those are like extreme cases, but still like required yeah. a lot of work to fix, I think. So that's a very famous example. That was in New York city. So in New York, the nine 11 memorial is called the tribute to light. That's and right. it's a very beautiful memorial. If you ever get the chance to see it, it's gorgeous. It has a waterfall that falls into the floor plates of where the building stands. So when you're standing there, you really see this water falling into a void. From those voids, you also have beams of light that shine up, extremely high intense light that is shining up into the sky at a peak migration period in September in New York City. And what was happening is that they saw that the birds were getting caught in these vortices of light. So one issue with glare is that the eye has the ability to see at really low light levels and at really high light levels, but not at the same time. So if you've ever left a movie theater in the afternoon and you came out into the parking lot and you started to squint, that's because your eyes are adapting from low light levels to high light levels. That takes about two minutes, one minute. It's a very short amount of time relative to adapting from light to dark. That can take up to an hour. So when we shine light into the eyes of animals, especially migrating animals, we truly affect their ability to see. And so the animals were getting stuck in these vortices of light. They were unable to see their way out. People below, observers could actually hear the birds crying out and in distress and some were dying because of exhaustion so what had happened was a group of scientists actually made a relationship with the facilities management to turn the lights out at periods to simply let the birds out and let them go this solved the problem it didn't have any long-term problem for the birds it would have if we hadn't freed them and this really goes to show that controls and turning lights out would give an enormous respite to animals. And observing truly nighttime hours 
when we don't necessarily need lighting. So that can have an enormous impact, a positive impact on animals and plants. Yeah, I think that's a great example of, of how if if we just kind of think about the consequences of what we're doing in anything, but specifically in light for this show, um, we can avoid a lot of issues, you know, I mean, humans aren't the best at sharing the planet in a way that is good for all beings um, historically, but especially with something as impactful as light, I think um, we can learn some lessons and hopefully start implementing some controls, like you said, and just being better neighbors to our animal and plant friends. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Chris, did you have any questions or anything you want to throw in there? Um, it's um, We're reading this book called Outland, and it's by Dennis E. Taylor. He did the Babaverse books, Jen. And I don't, did you read those? I did not. No. You did not. Jen, did you read them? Yeah, for I've the read book? the one. One? Okay, one. it's the same author. Anyway, tangent. Um <laughs> So at one part of the book, they're discovering this alternate dimension and this catastrophe happens in our dimension, Yosemite. Um, yeah, no, Yellowstone. Yellowstone, the volcano there just explodes. So they go to this alternate dimension and it's, an, it's a dimension where the meteor happened that destroyed the dinosaurs a little bit later and destroyed human beings. Whoa. So there's no humans in its present okay. time, but there's no humans on the planet. So these 200 people that get saved into this ultra dimension, they're not used to that type of darkness at night. Okay. So modern day humans were just not used to it being that dark i remember being in a cave in belize and um, our guide told us to turn off our flashlights and it was just it's scary right it's scary there was no point of light or anything <laughs> like that but it was utterly yeah. darkness but we as modern humans have just taken basically our light pollution for granted because we're not used to it being as right. dark as it is it's just a simple thing to take for granted right like there's lights everywhere and you don't really think about it needing to be controlled and regulated and really what is the impact on, on my, on, on migrating birds or even, even um, animals that, that stay all four seasons. We don't, I think it's just something so little that we don't even, which is unfortunate. Yes. That it's, it's a really interesting uh, point that you bring up about not being used to darkness because the, the problem is, the first thing that we need to do is to bring awareness to the need for darkness. Mm -hmm. The truth is, is that people just don't know how impactful light is. We've only come to really get an understanding of how light impacts humans. So we're extremely photosensitive. If you've ever held your hand up to a flashlight, your hand glows. We are in some ways see through. The backs of our knees are said to be photosensitive. Our retinas are photosensitive. Our skin, it burns, it's photosensitive. All of these are circadian triggers for informing our body of the length of daylight, of the time of day, when it's time to sleep, etc. And we've come to an understanding of that. And we also utilize the map of the stars to navigate the world. Now we don't necessarily need all of that. For animals, it remains a first line of defense to be able to know time and place by being able to see the night sky. And the problem is, is that as humans, there's not an understanding of this issue. And I'll, I'll talk about a project, actually. There was a project 
in Redding, California, and they were designing a bridge over the Sacramento Bridge, Sacramento River, which is a known, very sensitive area for salmon and salmon breeding. They wanted to make sure that no part of this new bridge design for pedestrians was going to touch the river at all. They went to painstaking efforts. They hired an architect all the way from Spain, Santiago Calatrava, and he was hired to be able to design the structure so that no part of the bridge would touch the water. They also added glass pavers in the bridge so that when the sun shone down, it would still shine through the bridge so as not to affect even the temperature of the water. Wow. Then what they did is they added LED lighting. The LED lighting created a beacon in which the predators were able to prey upon the salmon and kill them with great ease. And this was a community that spent, I believe it was $20 million on this footbridge. And the priority was the salmon. Maya Angelou has a quote, if you know better, you do better. People just don't know. Mm -hmm. They don't know that animals and plants have circadian rhythms. They, They don't hear the voices of animals and plants. They don't know that water penetrates, light penetrates the surface of water or that the air is not really invisible. All of these factors make lighting actually quite deceptive. It's quite counterintuitive in the way that it works. And yet we have it all around us so that we feel that we understand it, but actually there's so much to know that is not really understood. And so I think our first step is building that awareness. And the second step, getting back to your moment in the cave, is going to be reacquainting ourselves with the night and becoming aware of darkness again in a way that we really accept it as something that is important, real, and necessary. And I have to say, it's a very similar mindset that as humans, we think everything should be covered in plastic because then it will be clean and clinical. Or that if we shine light, we can't be sued because someone can't trip and fall. The idea that more light is safer. It's not true. Studies don't show that more light is safer. Studies actually show that more light creates more energy or uses more energy and can even create more glare. So this can be really not the case at all. Studies have shown that it's not more secure, that you're not safer from people who might jump out of the darkness and that you may not even be seeing better. Uniformity, having an even level of light is actually much better than having a blast of light. So that really is part of the issue is the misunderstanding that more light is better, or in my previous work, more plastic is better. (laughs) So that has been um, a theme that I've really seen that we really need to grapple or really come to terms with what is actually the best application of what's the right amount of light. So before we move on, did they fix that issue with the bridge? They did. Okay, (laughs) and they saved the salmon. They saved the salmon. Okay, good. They hired Bruce Springsteen's lighting designer, and he changed the lighting to make a better wavelength for marine environments, and they narrowed the optics so that they were shining uh, not so broadly into the water below. And they also, I believe they lowered the intensity and that had a positive effect 
Happy ending. Yes. The salmon. So, okay, so that brings up another question. Um, A lot of animals see on a broader spectrum than humans. So the light may seem like it's very uh, minimal to us, but how does that affect certain animals? You know, even if it's a very dim light, is it is it magnified for them? Or if it's a bright light, is it even worse for them than we think? You know, um, like, I guess I I know every animal is different, but what are the, I guess, the repercussions of, of having different wavelengths that they can see? Yes, there's a lot of really fascinating information on this particular question. So basically, yeah, we, as humans, we have five photoreceptors. We have uh, three sets of cones and rods, and then we have IPRGCs, which are the circadian rhythm photoreceptors. Um, Some women actually will have uh, up to uh, one other red cone, so they can have, see two types of red. Um, But for the most part, we really think of humans as having five separate photoreceptors in our eyes. Now, with other animals, say rats, rats have actually a UV photoreceptor. Um, And birds, for instance, are very, very impacted by red wavelength. Fish are very impacted by blues and greens, which makes sense because they're in the water. And uh, sea turtles, we aim to utilize very warm amber light so that they are not impacted by light. Now, if you take all those fun facts, actually they're in contradiction. So if I'm going to be using a reddish light for a sea turtle, I'm actually going to be probably throwing off the birds. When birds see red wavelength, they have been shown in studies to produce more uh, more eggs. Red wavelengths also interfere with magnetoreception in birds. So when they are migrating, they use the geomagnetic force of the Earth to stay on their migratory path. And when red light is shown, it actually interrupts that mechanism so that they can actually take off in the wrong direction. Wow. That has an impact. All this goes to show that it is truly possible it's truly impossible to find a magic wavelength. There's not going to be one wavelength that's going to replace the need for darkness. We simply need to observe darkness on a daily frequency. For some period of time. For some period of time. Okay. Interesting. What, is there a place on the planet that you could actually truly, without having to go underground in a cave, uh, measure that and experience that is there a place on earth that's untouched by yes daylight pollution great question and they're false <laughs> so there are dark sky places so the international dark sky association actually rates fixtures to be compliant with dark skies and they also have dark sky places the very first dark sky place was flagstaff arizona they began advocating for dark skies in 1958. So they have come, it wasn't an accident that they became the first dark sky place on the planet. And one way in which they did that was actually by not going to LED. They hung back and they stuck with previous light sources, which are called high pressure sodium and low pressure sodium. If you've ever been around those light sources, they're the very yellow light sources. They're You'll see them in old movies. If you stand under one of those light sources, 
you look very gray because there's very little color rendering because there's very little wavelength in the light. It's a very limited amount of color. And what we didn't realize at the time was the benefit of that limited wavelength was that it really reduced impact upon the animals and plants. And so now what we're seeing is I re recently just heard about a project in Amsterdam with the company Giza Mestieri, actually it's in the Netherlands, and a lighting company Giza Mestieri actually designed a light source to be an LED, but super warm so as not to impact the bats. And that's where we're going. We're going to be able to curate and cultivate light sources to have specific wavelengths so that we can get the most limited impact on wildlife while still getting the energy savings. And that is going to be an opportunity with LEDs. But I wanna stress that there's going to be no replacement for darkness because of the inherent contradictions of wavelengths impacting different species all across the board in different ways. Interesting. Yeah, I actually visited Arizona a couple years ago and we had to pull over on the side of the road because the sky was so amazing. And, you know, they, they say in Texas, the stars at night are big and bright, but like the Arizona sky had never, the Texas sky had nothing on Arizona. It was, wow. and, and we were on the highway, so we could see so many stars. Like I hadn't seen that many stars in the sky and I don't know when, but it's truly like, if you don't see it for so long and then you suddenly do see it, it's, it's kind of magical when you, yeah. you get to experience that and going to a new place is, is a neat way to do that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Awesome. Do you, you mentioned the International Dark Skies Association. So do you want to talk a little more about uh, what they do? And, you know, I, I've kind of heard about them in the past. I may have run into someone that tabled um, one of their promo tables once, but. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So the IDA is an organization and they have been ad advocating for dark skies for quite some time. I'm not sure when they began. Um, I first learned about them around 2014 and I quickly really became interested. And at that time, I was just really thinking it was all about the night sky. And I really learned that that loss is one that has tended to obscure the conversation or dominate the conversation about dark skies, which is that, oh, humans don't get to stop on the side of the road and see the vastness of that sky anymore. And yes, that's truly important, but there is no species on the planet that is not impacted by light pollution. And we are truly impacting the interdependence and the, the language of light between species. Interspecies connections are changing. The IDA is writing about all of this, so you can go to their website, there's a blog, there's scientific research, and they are a resource for being uh, able to inform people about light pollution and its impacts. Um, and they're one very important voice on the topic, for sure. Awesome. Um, so one of the, the questions or one of the things that I found as I was kind of looking into this subject, um, is that, you know, just about a hundred years ago, we, we could still see most of the stars in the sky, even the Milky Way in a lot of places, um, even in the cities. So 
today, uh, it's estimated that three of four people live in cities where they can only see a fraction of these stars in the night sky. Um, so uh, first, I guess, let me say it is about 100 years um, about the time that we started having this issue, or do you think it started even sooner than that? And when do you think it got to the point that it is now where, you know, some people don't even realize there's more than a handful of stars in the sky? So, I mean, I really, my, I, my starter is 1875, the Industrial Revolution, when we got the electric light. Mm -hmm. That wasn't really the start of it. We started to see a loss, particularly in the 70s. That's when a lot of people started to notice. Now, Flagstaff started in 1958, so they were pretty ahead of the, their time. But with the age of LEDs, in the last 20 years, the loss has been incredible. So we started to see a major turn in the industry, especially in 2009. And so between the early start of the 2000s to now, it's become an exponential loss. And this loss really is a loss for humans and the way that we're impacted. I was actually just thinking about before we got on the call that there's a very, there's a lot of meditation that is centered around dusk and dawn. And we don't really see dusk and dawn in the way that we normally do or normally had as humans. This time of the changing of the light has been likened to a lot of really important philosophical ponderings for humanity. And we don't really see and observe that. We don't take that step back. We're in constant connection with social media. We're in constant connection with lights flipping on. And I think that there is a loss there that we're not really comprehending in terms of slowing down and really thinking about decisions and really making more of a process to how we come to our lifestyle. So that also, when you can't also look up at, and see the stars at night, I think there is a loss that we really don't understand what that is. So that has been a, that is going to be an increasing problem because of how many LEDs are present and how many more will be. Yeah, there's a, an, a magical connection kind of to the universe that you feel when you look up at the sky and it's just, it, it kind of shows you that, you know, how big the world and the universe is, I think, and it makes you realize your place in it a little more or the opposite, you know, maybe you think, wow, there's so much out there to explore. Um, mm -hmm. It is kind of sad to think that some kids will never see that if they live in, you know, in a city where they can't see the sky or for either because of light pollution or haze or whatever. Um, yeah. 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 When my nephew, um, he lived in the greater Toronto area for, Mo for ever since he could remember, he's always lived in a city. And then he recently moved up here about two years ago, him and his, his sister and his brother, and my sister-in-law, and he came to visit us and it was, it was starting to get dark and he was staying overnight and he walked outside on the beach and he just looked up and he's like, wow, <laughs> he's like, I've never seen so many stars. I'm like, welcome <laughs> to the sticks, buddy. Like this is it. <laughs> we have awesome. some all the time unless there's cloud cover, but yeah, I just never, I've never lived in a city. So I always sort of thought that that's what it looked like and then to know that it doesn't in the city it kind of makes me sad yeah. yeah that it's not as brilliant 
there. So folks, if you do live in a big city where maybe you, you don't get to experience the brilliance of the night sky, um, get out in the country if you can, or even maybe petition your city government to do like a lights out once a year, once a month, something like that. I don't know if that's a campaign that um, people have already done, but it seems like it'd be an interesting concept just to kind of shut all the lights off for an hour or so just to mm-hmm. to get to actually see what the sky looks like. Yes, um, actually, that is something that I am working on currently. So awesome. stay tuned cool. about that. Yeah. Yay, that'll yeah. be That'll be great. Yeah. Um, we briefly, you briefly touched on the fact that plants are affected by this as well. I know we've spent a lot of time on animals and humans, but how how are plants affected by light? You think they're they're just stuck in one spot? So what what does it matter to them how much light? I mean, they they uh, need sunlight to grow, obviously, but like artificial light. Right. Great question. So have you ever noticed a tree flowering? next to a street lamp when all of its tree neighbors are not near that street lamp and are not flowering. So that tree is basically flowering because of the impact of that street lamp and its proximity. Basically, the way that trees work and specifically is that they they deal with photoperiodism, which is the length of day. So right now, the length of day, we're just coming past the solstice in North America and the length of day actually can increase or decrease by quite a bit can be one or two minutes as you get down to the lower light level time of year that they start to inch to much shorter periods of time Um, so the length of day each day separates maybe by 30 seconds 20 seconds something like that Mm -hmm. so but trees are very sensitive to that in fact that is what triggers them the length of day. When the length of day falls to a certain level, that's when a tree says, oh, it might be time to start shedding my leaves, start preparing myself for winter. They do go into dormancy, which is a protective state to protect against the cold. So if they're being told that it's not a certain time of year, this can impact flowering, this can impact root development, leaf growth, leaf shape, All of this is really impactful. And what I would like to say is that plants and trees are the lungs of our earth. They are the opposite of the CO2, O2 cycle that animals participate in. And so when we throw off the photo period for plants, that is having impacts that we probably don't understand yet. Plants are photosynthesizers. I can't imagine as a biological organism having my fuel constantly injected. It's kind of like if I was eating sugar all the time throughout my day, how would that make me feel as an organism? I think it would make me feel pretty terrible. So I, we don't yet know all of the impacts, but with the level of sky glow happening around major cities, this is creating a time where plants are never seeing darkness. I can't know yet what those impacts are, but it can't be good. Are there studies being done on this for plants and animals specifically um, to to target one specific problem or issue that they think they're having or even a broad range? Yes, there are studies. Studies are showing the impact of the trees and root growth, dormancy, 
there are studies on that, and there are also a lot of studies on specific animals as well. Um, one example that I like to talk about a lot is that they did a study where they put li poles, lighting poles, in a meadow, and they compared that to an unlit meadow for pollination. So we have two types of pollinators in the world. We have nocturnal pollinators and we have diurnal pollinators during the day. We need both to do the ecological service of pollination. The study showed that the, un the lit meadow received 62% less visits by pollinators. And when they studied a plant cabbage thistle, cabbage thistle actually bore 13% less fruits than the other cabbage thistle in the unlit meadow. So this is really impacting the pollination of plants as well as insects. And on an aside about insects, actually at any given time, we, uh, there are 10 quintillion insects on the earth. There was just recently an article published in the New York Times magazine uh, in the New York Times, called the insect apocalypse. And basically, we are illuminating the earth to such a way that insects are coming to light sources and they're exhausting themselves. So at that point, we are then having bats change their sense of what is normal in their behavior. And bats are actually hanging out at these light sources and just eating the insects. Mm. So why I like to say this one example is that it's not just that we're impacting a single species. We're making a change to how species relate to one another. We're taking the nocturnal pollinators away from the cabbage thistle. The cabbage thistle is bearing less fruit, which is often the food source of that pollinator. That pollinator instead is sitting out at streetlights, exhausting themselves and falling to the ground, or being eaten by bats who would have been doing something else. So that's an- Who also pollinate sometimes, right? Who also pollinate, exactly. So there is an enormous change in behavior that was nudged into place over millennia to create this intricate, delicate balance of species connection and interconnection. And when we change the language of light, we change how species relate to one another. So we are not only changing the temperature of the planet, we're changing the light and all of these organisms are having to deal with changes everywhere. And it's a wonder that they're still even thriving in a lot of places when there's such extremes, you know, happening yeah. in all of these things that they rely on. Yes. Light was not specifically mentioned in the UN report, but I will say that more than any other factor over, say, temperature, light has been the factor that has kept the rhythm of circadian rhythms for plants and animals. Because light, up until 1875, was a constant rhythm of light and dark throughout a 24-hour day cycle, 24-hour cycle. And now that we've changed that, we have changed a really constant source of rhythm. When with temperature, we had the ice age in longer terms, and then we have, say, El Nino in shorter terms. It's not quite the same of a factor as, say, light was. And now that we've changed that so uh, in such a great way, 
that really is quite dangerous. Jeez. Yeah. So do you think that, you know, there's elections coming up and stuff and new green deals and things like, do you think that light pollution needs to be on those plans and needs to be talked about more? It absolutely does. The problem is that it doesn't sound like a big deal. Mm -hmm. Light pollution. Oh, no. Like, it's a lot more alarming to think that you're eating a credit card's worth of plastic. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But sleep hygiene is huge. And when you shine light in your eyes before you're going to bed, you're creating actually a, uh, you're putting your circadian clocks. We don't just have one circadian clock. Your heart has a certain rhythm to it. So you can get really nervous and it starts to get out of rhythm because it starts to beat really quickly. But say your stomach doesn't change its rhythm during that time period. So you have a circadian clock uh, that is often can be different in your major organs. Our main master clock is in our brain. It's the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So what can happen when we start shining light at awkward times, um, flashes of light, we can get the systems out of sync with one another. And that is what can often lead to malaise and disease because it's one thing to be jet lagged and have everything sort of shifted and weird. But when things are out of sync, that is when it can get really not so good for the body. Yeah. And in addition to just your rhythm and your sleep cycle, um, you know, there's been a lot of studies that show eye strain is a real issue. If you're looking at, you know, a screen all day, um, you're looking at a source of light and I imagine constantly having glare or reflection or some kind of light pollution constantly in your eyes um, doesn't help with that too. So there's a physical um, consequence to your, your body and your eyes in yes. some ways. Yes, it can, it can really have an impact. And I, you know, I'm, I'm an imperfect human myself. I have looked at my phone in uh, bed and then felt like, oh my God, I was tired. Now I'm not. <laughs> So it is really, it's not good. And uh, actually, they say if you want to watch TV, it's not the worst thing in the world because the TV is far enough from your retina that it's not shining directly onto it. That's what it's called distribution. Where is the light falling on your retina? So it's not a ton of distribution hitting the retina. If you ever closed your eyes and you can see the rectangle of your phone, that is light falling directly on your retina and creating that shadow box in your eye that, you know, if you're doing that and you can close your eyes at night and you're in bed, that you're probably creating impact. Hmm. So there are some settings now on some devices that you can lower, or I think the blue light filter, you can, you can add a different setting um, of different wavelengths. Um, are those effective? Would you recommend those or is it better to just to go without the light I- at all? I have it on my phone. I mean, I'll take everything I can get. But um, a question I often ask when I'm educating is, um, I'll ask the audience, what do you think is more important, the color of the light or the intensity of the light? And what do you guys think? The intensity? The intensity, yeah. Okay. So even if you change 
<laughs> even if you change the color of the light, which is what the night shift does on Apple, mm -hmm. even if you change that, you will still be having the intensity of the light mm -hmm. on your eye. So that's going to create, you know, a you in your circadian rhythms. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. There's danger everywhere. There Even is. the light's dangerous. There is. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, this has been awesome. Um, Chris, did you have anything else you wanted to ask or throw in before we move on? Let me make sure I got all mine too. <laughs> uh, no, I just, it's been like a lot of eye opening. I didn't think about any of that, anything that you mentioned. I knew light pollution was a problem. I knew how it was created, but I didn't know at to just the smallest detail that it affects. I honestly didn't know. And it's, I thank you very much for yeah. sharing that. I, cause I really didn't know. And I think it's, it's really important. It's, it's as important as any environmental issue today. Like it has to be talked about more. It, it really is. And um, when Jennifer and I were preparing for this, um, I had been thinking about it and I thought the sensory pollution doesn't get the same amount of attention that toxic pollution does or when we have like a physical substance you can't reach out and touch light or you can't reach out and touch sound that is impacting but these are still creating enormous problems for our ecosystems mm -hmm. so it's the sensory pollution that i think doesn't really get the amount of attention that it does because it's much easier to focus on the things that you can touch. I think rather the ones that you can feel, they don't really get that same alarm in the human mind. Yeah, it's funny you say that because one of the other speakers that uh, was in your panel talked about sound pollution, which yeah. honestly I had never thought about before, but that kind of has similar impacts on wildlife um, when yeah. there's noises and, you know, with humans, it's obviously it can be dangerous if it's too loud burst your eardrum but um animals have the same reactions and a lot of times they hear different ranges again like they see different ranges and um all things to think about so yes absolutely so okay let's real quick i guess go over some things that we can do to reduce our light pollution as consumers as you know just users of the light you mentioned some cities are starting to use better um sources of light the the sodium lighting or they're going back to that um but you know at our own house what can we what changes can we make sure so first thing first turn lights off turn them off at night if you're not using them don't turn them on if you want to have a light for your yard or for your entranceway you can put them on timers you can put them on occupancy sensors there's ways of having that light but I would really use light judiciously, especially since we all have iPhones. We all have phones in our pocket that can be an immediate flashlight if we need it, that know that we really don't need as much light as we think we do. And turning lights out is going to be a major way of giving wildlife the respite that it needs. Never shine light up. Light should be shined down. We should also use wavelengths of light that are tending to veer away from blue wavelengths. If you think about the great dome of the sky, it's blue. So blue is a very triggering for daytime activity. Obviously there are some animals, say 
birds, I say fish that are triggered by it, but you, it's best to really, what I like to say is anything outside of the natural daylight cycle is going to create impact. So if you're mirroring the natural daylight cycle relatively, you're going to be doing a good job. So minimal light, warmer wavelengths is a really good start. Awesome. Yes. And are there any resources? Um, you mentioned Dark Skies Association. Any other organizations or websites you would send people to to get more information or maybe even get involved in reducing light pollution? The IDA is the major go-to source. There's also my website, anatomyofnight.com. That is a place where I publish articles and talk about the topic of how light impacts wildlife especially. Awesome. Um, is there anything else you want to cover with relation to what you do or uh, just, you know, anything we haven't talked about so far? I have recently gotten involved with working with the Urban Wildlife Information Network. It's a super exciting organization, and they are working to help protect wildlife, especially in urban environments. Uh, they have an upcoming conference in November that I'll be participating in, and I think there's just a lot of exciting work to be doing with them. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, we're, we'll put these um, web these links on our, on our page when we share the show as well. So folks can find them. Um, so with that, if there's nothing else on the subject, I think we've covered a lot and given people a lot to think about. We'll go ahead and move on to our green life hacks. And mm. this is where we talk about something that we do either something we've always done, or we just discovered um, a, a product we use that just helps us reduce our carbon footprint. So Chris, would you like to go first? Um, it's book, The Minimalist book. Home by Joshua Baker. Joshua okay. Baker. Um, it's sort of a room, it's a room by room guide to how to declutter and sort of re-focus your life and sort of take stock of what's important. It's really easy. It just, it takes you room by room, what rooms you should do first. Um, he's very non-judgmental because um, when he first started, everybody he knew who's getting into minimalism was immediately downsizing and immediately changing neighborhoods and just really, really paring down his life. And he has a wife and two kids and he loves his neighborhood and loves his house. And he's just like, I don't want to do any of that, but I don't need a lot of this stuff. So he's, it's more of a sort of a gateway drug into minimalism is Joshua <laughs> Baker. So he's, he's very realistic and it's not as, cause I, find Marie Kondo that folding just it's <laughs> unrealistic I'm not going to spend that amount of time folding t-shirts that stand up um and then there's also this one I just started reading it's called humans a brief history about how we effed up mm. we suck <clears throat> so this is by Tom yeah Phillips. yeah we do <laughs> um it's by Tom Phillips and he is um he's an English writer so it's kind of reminds me a little bit of um Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy a little bit but it just goes through why we keep messing up like we just mm -hmm. can't seem to get it right and why and it's sort of been this ongoing thing since we stood up essentially <laughs> and became bipedal like it's just been like he goes all the way back to Lucy and how if Lucy hadn't fallen out of the tree you know where would we be? So interesting. I need yeah, to read just, that. Yeah. It's uh, good books to expand your mind. 
Sounds interesting. Thank you. So I had something I was going to show you guys, but after this conversation, I realized I need to do, I need to talk about something relevant to what we're talking about. So I actually have, I don't have them out right now since I didn't grab it, but um, timers on my porch lights. Oh, amazing. Turn them on and off. Um, So they're actually solar, you know, sensors. They, They come on when I guess the light or the light goes down outside, but then they go off after a few hours since I tend to get home a lot of times late. Um, and now that it's getting dark later, they don't come on as, as early. So I need to make sure that I've got the right lights in there and that I'm not disturbing, you know, the wildlife. Um, but I do have the timers on so that they're not shining all night and distracting everybody. And luckily, well, I say luckily, sometimes it's awkward, but my, my street doesn't have street lights. Great. <laughs> so it can be a little hard when you're driving and people are like, wow, it's really dark on your street. But, um, but yeah, so that helps minimize, I guess, the light pollution in, in my yard. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Jane, what do you have to share with us today? So I thought about this and my call to action is actually to turn lights out from midnight to 6 a.m. And I think that if we got used to having this period of time as dark, that we could actually really make an enormous positive impact for wildlife. And of course, there are always going to be exceptions. But my call to anyone listening is that if you have control over your home lights, you know of your lights at your workplace, or you know of how the light is being used in your municipality, that really start to think about how you can get lights out from 12 to 6 and give that respite back to wildlife. That's a great call to action. It's, It's very unfortunate that a lot of businesses feel the need to have the lights on 24 seven because of safety or, um, you know, especially in cities, I guess you just see the chains on the door and the lights on so that people can see inside. Um, I don't know what the solution to that is because I don't know that people will ever well, be okay with actually, not doing that. But what they so the reason businesses do that is they think that people won't will break not in break in because they'll be seen. But that's not what it sh- is shown in studies. Actually, there is a school here in Massachusetts, and it's becoming a thing to have dark schools where you keep lights off at night. What they're seeing is is actually reducing vandalism. Wow. And if you think about it, if you are a vandal, you too are afraid of the dark. You don't want to be walking around the dark either. Mm-hmm. So light is actually a beacon that attracts people, gives them the idea. That's what yeah. we're finding. Well, and it seems like it would you it would just make it visible for them. Oh, there's a TV I can take yeah. as opposed yeah. to if they have to take a flashlight in, then you're going to see that beacon of light in the dark and know that they're in there. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess. So we need to reeducate our, uh, our, I guess, business owners and elected officials on a lot of this yeah. stuff. So awareness is key. And I'm very thankful for your podcast because hopefully we can start really getting this information out there. Well, thank you. Yeah. And thank you for being on. Um, I look forward to hearing about your, uh, dark cities uh scenario that you're working on and feel free to send that to us and we'll share that on our, on our facebook and everything. yeah um so we'll go through real quick and say where we can find everyone uh jane where can we find you 
online. You've mentioned your website, but go ahead and plug it again and any social media you want to. Sure. So my website is anatomyofnight.com. That is where I do my advocacy and research for dark skies and wildlife. I also have an artist website that is anatomyoflight.com, and that is where I make light art and jewelry. And I, you can be found on Twitter at my handle is Jane Slade, but it's not spelled exactly like my name is, which is my name is S L A D E. My handle is S L A Y E D. So at Jane S L A. Oh. That's clever. <laughs> and yes, yeah, so you can find me on all of those places. Please reach out to me if you have any projects or collaborations. If you need research for a design project and you want to try and mitigate the impacts of wildlife, I do consulting. And we are potentially, our next project is going to be working on a zoo to mitigate the impacts of how light impacts the animals. So it's a super exciting opportunity. So um, we're really looking to try and get people involved to make this change. Uh, and what I like to say is that at any given time, if the power went out, light pollution would truly just go away. And that is to say that of all the types of pollution, it might be one of the easiest to solve, but we truly need to bring that awareness. And people are not monsters. They don't want to be creating impact. They just don't know. So awareness is a true first step. That's awesome. What a cool job you have. <laughs> like, you. You're getting to do all these cool things, man. Um, Chris, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me here. You can find me on Marginally Geeky and Epically Geeky and on Instagram at Cedar Birch Cottage. I haven't been posting a whole lot as of late because I've just been enjoying everybody else's posts, but uh, Plastic Free July is coming up, so that might be the kick in the butt. Well, and hopefully you'll have some new stuff to post, a big announcement soon to post for, for our listeners. Keep keep an eye out on that with your your sister's thing. Oh, I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> am I pregnant? No. <laughs> what? Uh, no big announcement there. I don't yes. know how I would know that, but. <laughs> um, yeah, so exciting things happening in Canada. Yeah. Um, and you can find me, as always, here on Sustainably Geeky. I'm also on Epically Geeky, our parent show, our parent channel, and Marginally Geeky, which is our book club. Um, and, of course, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Het's Gonna Be Me. Um, <laughs> I like plays on words. So, um, so yeah. And then, of course, you can find the show on Instagram, iTunes, uh, Stitcher. Google Play, YouTube, and now Pandora and uh, Spotify. So wherever you listen to podcasts, please uh, like us, subscribe to us, give us a five-star rating or whatever your channel allows you to do. It really helps us um, push those ratings up so other people hear us. And, of course, share us on social media. We're on Facebook. Um, and we really appreciate all the interaction that we're getting from you guys. If you have future ideas, let us know what you want to hear. Thank you for listening and have a great week. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network.